Consider this, 100% of owners will leave their business one day, but few are prepared. Are you? Don't worry, you're in the right place with this podcast, Succession Stories. Host Lori Barkman, the business transition Sherpa, guides you from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. Lori is a business transition and M&A advisor, specializing in growth, acquisitions, and selling owner-led companies. She's also the author of the Business Transition Handbook. Get your copy and learn how to avoid succession pitfalls and create valuable exit options. Sign up for a business transition newsletter at successionstories.com. Show us the love by subscribing to the show and posting a review. We appreciate you. Now, here's this week's Succession Stories with Lori Barkman. Ben Rizzo is the founder of Heartwood Point, making direct private investments across the U.S. and the U.K., primarily in operator-led buyouts. He serves as CEO of Secure Air Technologies, a leading indoor air quality technology company, is an advisor to Berkshire Partners and board member of AA1 Foods. Ben was previously the president and owner of Hadfield Elevator, where he led the company's transformational growth and sale to three-phase elevator. We talked about Hadfield Elevator, Ben's first deal, a distressed business, and how he turned it around through COVID. After only two years, he went through a successful sales process, finding a buyer who was the right fit. Having experience on both sides of the table, I enjoyed what Ben advises is really important for business owners to know and practical tips of what you can do now to get ready. When the time comes to sell, you'll be prepared for a great exit to a buyer of choice with a vision to ride off into the sunset and be happy. Both acquisition seekers and sellers will find value in my Succession Stories conversation with Ben Rizzo. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Ben Rizzo, welcome to Succession Stories. When we've had people on the show in the past who can talk about both buy side and sell side. It's so compelling. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So welcome. I'm glad to be with you. Glad to be with you as well, Lori. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with your background? What got you interested in buying a business? Sure. So I'm an engineer by training and I always thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur at some fort. And I started a company during graduate school that immediately failed. And I was like, man, I really like this whole concept of being my own boss and having a company, but I didn't really have any great ideas. And I was introduced to this concept of being able to buy a business and entrepreneurship through acquisition. I was like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do in some form. And so I, I started kind of getting involved and in learning about that space and the different forms of which people can do it and then set out to do it myself and gone through all, all sorts of different iterations of exactly the type of entrepreneurship acquisition I've done over the past couple of years, but I've really enjoyed kind of the, the entrepreneurship aspects and the acquisition aspects are good too, but the, the, the ability to be an entrepreneur working with other people and other people's businesses uh, and make them my own in some way, shape or form has been really rewarding. 
How did you go about it? Did you have investors that were backing you? Were you taking out a bank loan or an SBA loan? Yeah, so traditionally entrepreneurship through acquisition is financed through a group of investors, bank debt. I ended up buying a business that already had a lot of debt on it and was able to write a check myself and then restructure some of the debt. And so that was essentially the per purchase price was an assumption of liabilities. And that, that was a relatively unique structure and not something that I was looking to do, but it was the right thing. Well, why don't we talk about that? Let's talk about your criteria. How did you go about your search? What were you looking for? And then ultimately, how did you get connected with Hadfield Elevator? Mm -hmm. So I was here in Pittsburgh looking for something locally that I could buy, insert myself and run. And generally the criteria for that type of thing is a good, solid, small business where there's been some sort of need for transition, death, divorce, whatever, you know, fam family issues, they just decide to sell. But a good small business that has a nice revenue stream and is very repeat or recurring. And I found this elevator business through one of their professional advisors. And they said, hey, there's this business where something needs to happen. You might be a good fit. The, the fourth generation owner was about my age and we hit it off. And it was a situation where there were some family issues and there was some also some project issues where the business was financially having some issues. And they really needed some help on the general management side. They need some financial restructuring. And so what I saw in the business was, hey, this is a really good industry. Elevator services, really good characteristics. Elevators go up and down. They keep running no matter what. Buildings kind of have to service them. And so I liked that aspect of it and was able to get comfortable with, hey, even though this business is in a tough position, this, this can be a good business and should be a good business and we can make it that. And so was able to come up with a deal with the family members to buy them out and then insert myself and run the business with keeping some of the family members on staff with salaries. What was the rough target of the revenue that you were looking for companies when you were looking around? Was this a smaller business? So generally I was looking for something with, you know, five to 15 million in revenue. Gotcha. Right in that range. Yeah. Okay. Looking for recurring revenue. So for Hadfield, they would implement the elevators if it was a new building, right? They would install the elevators. But then did they also have service agreements? Was that the recurring yeah, revenue? Yeah, the majority you? of the business is the recurring maintenance service contract. The business actually didn't do a lot of new installations, which I liked. New installations and construction can be very lumpy. And so, yeah, the, the gold standard in terms of acquisition entrepreneurship is recurring revenue where the same customers are paying you year over year, month over month, and elevators have that. Frequently, it's not that straightforward. It's, you know, oh, there's repeat revenue or reoccurring revenue where it's, you know, they, they keep buying, but it's not actual. The contractually recurring revenue is really kind of the gold standard for, hey, you know, there's money gonna, that's going to keep coming in for whatever the life of the contract is. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's just pause on that because I, I talk about this a lot when I do CEO workshops, the difference between recurring and reoccurring. And not everyone understands that. You articulated it very, very well. So I just want to underscore that for our listeners, that recurring revenue is contracted revenue. There's different types of recurring revenue models like mm -hmm. Netflix, where you put in your credit card and they just are happy to take your money until you unsubscribe. And with a service company like Hadfield, was it multi-year contracts? What was the nature of the, of the service agreements that made them recurring? 
generally it was a multi-year contract with automatic renewals and less canceled and there was different flavors and generally the long and short of the elevator industry is the big players will install elevators and new buildings at a relatively low margin in order to get the service contracts they have a mixed mixed reputation at best in terms of their efforts during those service contracts because they've got you for many years and then they'll just kind of keep those on repeat for as long as they can hold hold on to you for and so the independent players like the hadfields try and be the service providers of choice and that was another thing when i was diligence in the industry i was like oh the reputation of the industry, most building owners do not like their provider of these services because they know that they have to buy these services. Prices are very high. So my competition is not particularly well liked. I should be able to beat them. How did you get introduced to Hadfield? How did you find them? Through a lawyer. I was at an event and I was introducing myself to a group of people and I said, I'm you know, looking to run a business. And a lawyer said, oh, I don't do that. I'm a patent lawyer, but let me introduce you to the guy at my firm who does he introduced me to the guy who does kind of business representation in their law firm. I said, I'm a guy looking to buy and run a business. And he said, Oh, I've got a business where something needs to happen. You know, the business was not widely for sale, but you know, they, they, like I said, they, they were in a precarious position, needed something to happen. And, you know, the introduction, and we really were a fit with Bob Hadfield, the guy who I ended up be, you know, really being a partner with. Yeah. Let's talk about the Hadfield family. This is so interesting that it made it to the fourth generation, which is already kind of beating the odds. A lot of the, a lot yeah. of family businesses don't even make it that far, but you alluded to in your introduction that Hadfield had taken on a lot of debt. You know, when you're going through the diligence, you were learning more and more about them. What were some of the circumstances that, that was driving some of the need to turn around the business? Yeah. The biggest situation was a very large project that had gone awry that was very well publicized and I cannot comment further on, but that was like a very obvious for me in terms of diligence. It was like, oh, this was the thing that went wrong. This was the bad situation, making sure this wasn't going to happen all the time. And then on the kind of surrounding that was, okay, what were the, the management frameworks that allowed something like this to happen? Are those fixable? Are those going on all the time and figuring out that that was a surmountable kind of change to make. But it was really one big project of a very, ended up being a very large issue for them. Gotcha. So without revealing things you can't reveal, why did Hadfield say, okay, we want to sell as opposed to them staying the course and staying within the family business? Were there more of a rift within the family that couldn't be reconnected? The family was working out, you know, kind of their own management issues and dynamics. And then there's you know, significant debt from on the business from a number of sources where there were personal guarantees on. So you kind of had to figure out, hey, what do we want to happen? Gotcha. It would be interesting to have a representative from the Hadfield Elevator on the show too, because it's always interesting to get yeah. both, both sides of it. So you're going through diligence, you're finding out more about it. Why didn't you run for the hills? What kept you back in, in the process? Rather than say, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is a turnaround. This is not an easy thing. What yeah. kept you going there? You know, certainly that I knew that there was money coming in. So I knew that it was good industry, good business. You know, Bob Hatfield's reputation was very, very good in customer calls. Hey, he, this guy shows up and does the work. You know, it's just a question of the kind of the back office, some of those issues. I was like, oh, that is more fixable than, oh, this is a cultural thing where nobody shows up to do the work. No, they do the work. We just need to make sure that the guide rails in terms of operating parameters are out there. And that was kind of the, oh, that in a good industry is an interesting situation. So you close the deal. You're now the mm -hmm. owner. 
And was there an earnout, or what were the terms with the sellers? Were they out on the day of closing? They were out. Yeah, it was just signed here, and then, like I said, I you know I continued to employ some of the family members that were working in contracts, similar to other employees of do the work and you get paid. But that was that was a pretty cut and dry deal structure from that aspect. Did you have a solid business plan coming into this about taking over what to do now? It's no longer owned by family. It's now, Mm -hmm. and it's not fourth generation anymore. It's a new owner. How did you think about that transition? Yeah, so it was important to me to keep the family members that were involved and work with them as partners. Uh, Absolutely continue to run it as a family-owned business. You just, I have a family, Bob has a family, we own the business. And, and then figure out, again, what were the things that we needed to do to turn around the business to make it more like the attractive business to own or sell that it should be. And that was really diving into those financials and operating metrics around project economics, work in process, th- those types of things that you know, Bob just didn't have time to do because he was out working so hard fixing elevators that I was able to sit in the office and figure out, hey, man, here's the projects that are profitable. Here's the ones that are not. Here's kind of some general rules of thumb as we're doing bids, as we're doing maintenance routes, those types of things to make sure that we're staying within our relatively safe zone of operations that we're going to continue to grow the business and build build a good business here. So when you took over, how many employees were there? Was it like 20, 25 or so? Okay. And how long till you sold the company? How, how many years did you own it? So I owned the business for just two years. Two years. Wow. Yeah. Did you have that intention when you bought it? Did you think that you were going to sell it so quickly? Not particularly. I'd rather own a really good business for a long time than and then sell it. Uh, what happened with us was you know, COVID hit six, five months into owning the business. And we had just kind of turned around and we managed through COVID. Okay. We ended up growing pretty aggressively. And then towards the end, we were getting into significantly larger projects than I was comfortable with. And I said, Hey, last guy knew a lot more about elevators than I did and got into some projects that caused some problems. We've done a pretty good thing here, understanding what I could do and what I couldn't do as an owner. And, you know, it's time for me to kind of find the next home for the business that could continue the growth and offer more sophisticated support to, you know, Bob and, and the other guys that I was going to be able to. And do you think that was more technical, that it was because you were looking for maybe a strategic acquirer that, that was in the elevator industry to get it to that next level? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew, you know, having those thoughts, it was pretty obvious to me who I wanted to buy the business in terms of a financial partner that would that would leave operations as Hadfield Elevator, um, rather than selling to a strategic that was going to fire most of the people and just take the customers. That was that was really not interesting. But the ability to find a, a strategic partner that was in the industry that wanted to continue to support growth and continue to employ the employees and and management and staff and operating kind of mostly as is obviously no one no buyer's going to keep everything as is um that was really the the compelling thing to me gotcha so did you look to private equity groups yeah it was a private equity backed roll up um there were a number of them that were in the elevator industry uh a couple geographically contiguous and so I you know hired a elevator specific banker that did a really good job kind of augmenting my knowledge. I knew a, cu- a couple of groups had contacted us and said, "Hey, we were interested," and there were a couple that I didn't know existed. Making sure that those those groups were still kind of within market for 
either new entrants in private equity firms or the strategics, the Otis Schindler's test and those types of groups that making, giving me knowledge of here's what people pay for businesses about your size with you know, these characteristics and making sure all those things fit. And then interviewing um, the private equity firms and then figuring out who we fit with, who had kind of the operating parameters and operating procedures in that I thought could help the business. And then, you know, create as best of a bidding war as possible. <laughs> Yeah, so they ran a they ran a process for you and ultimately how many indications of interest or letters of intent did you get in that first phase? We had a pretty targeted process where we did not go out to the broad market, but we had about 5 groups that we circled initially and then um I would say 3 of them were pretty serious and then we were able to um understand from those 3 groups some nitty gritty details pretty quickly and, and figure out who, who we wanted to go with. It was, yeah, it was so. a very tough decision though, because you know, the different groups, um, financial considerations being within the same ballpark, the, the different groups were all um, really well represented and kind of had their own unique flavors of exactly how the business was going to go forward. And it's very hard to know what level of support the business was going to need to continue to grow and provide you know, a good environment for the employees. So with this approach, were you looking for a private equity group that saw your business as a platform or saw your business as a tuck-in or an add-on? We were a tuck-in and I knew that. Um, we, okay. There was interest for us to be a platform, but I knew there were a number of platforms already. Uh, and so it wasn't super exciting for me to launch a new platform and to try and compete with them. Um, but a tuck-in where we were a new geography. And so that was a nice aspect of we were the, we were and are the brands in the markets where we were acquired and so the best shot at kind of giving the the business its own life as it functions within the platform who is your most important customer the person who buys your business stony hill advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. So as you look back at the negotiation process mm -hmm. and all the, as you said, trying to figure out the right fit, what do you think are some of the biggest watchouts if you were going to give some guidance to others who are looking to sell one day? I think getting the accounting done up front is really important. We had reviewed financial statements ready to go. You know, you don't need an audited financial statements, but you do need something more than compiled. So having those for a couple of years in advance is, is really worthwhile rather than, hey, we're going to sell. We need to go back, reopen everything because everything's going to be reopened. So have it have it done ahead of time. And then more so than just having it done, really understanding the cash flow cycles and the working capital swings and the work in process financing for all of your projects in your business, because that's where there's going to be, um, even if not someone trying to screw you, you there's just going to be a, lot, a lack of understanding of your business. And those dollars can add up to significant sums very quickly. And so you need to be able to, to understand why you might have to leave working capital in the business in excess of what you usually do, or why the buyer may want guarantees on certain things because 
you know, they're, they're abnormal. And so I think that's where um, you just have to go in with a mindset of education um, rather than defensiveness, because you're going to get asked a lot of questions. And it's not that they think you're hiding something. It's that they don't know what you're doing. And small business accounting is always very uh, unique to the small business. And so you just have to be prepared that what you're doing is probably fine, but not the same as everyone else. And so um, to in, or, to in order to kind of protect and make sure you get the money that you should, you got to know what you're doing and how to represent it. Yeah, absolutely. The financial piece is so important. And I don't think enough small businesses spend time on this. And I like what you, what you suggested, which is you don't need audited financials, but reviewed financials, which is yeah. this specific process and the documentation gives that confidence to the buyer that mm -hmm. what they're receiving is, you know, has been validated and, and, and it, it makes it easier to move forward in the diligence process for sure. Mm -hmm. I have, I have some clients now, it is painful where we're going back and we're reviewing, you know, taking some yeah. things out manually in Excel and mm -hmm. it's hard to reconcile all of those things. Especially for ad backs. Because Correct. most small business owners, if not all small business owners are running some sort of excessive personal expense to some degree through the business that is fine and you know that may not be egregious but that you're going to want to say hey buyer i'm doing this because it's my decision to have this luxury office or a nicer car that i really need that is you know the, the business is paying for uh i'm not going to pay for the buyer to have that i want credit for my decision to spend cash in this way and so you need to have a pretty item by line item reason for those ad backs uh, and that can really help diligence go that much faster of nope these these are the things here's all the documentation this is why it, it should be an ad back and you know with your advisor that have that prepared because that that is always a point of contention as well so now you sit on the other side of the table you had this buy experience then you mm -hmm. sold it and Let's talk about what you're doing today, because now again, you're you're on the buy side. You're looking to find companies as an investor mm -hmm. and maybe even find one and run it again yourself. Let's talk a little bit about that whole portfolio. Like I said, the traditional form of entrepreneurship through acquisition is buy, say, a million dollar EBITDA business for four to five times. You get a couple million dollars in bank debt, a couple uh, you know, million dollars in a seller note, and then you need a million dollars. And most people don't have a million dollars that are doing this. And so then you go and raise it from investors. And I, I fund um, in minority positions, investments like that pretty regularly for um, men and women across the US and the UK, um, buying all sorts of businesses that I didn't know existed until I hear about them that are great businesses. Whatever you're providing them is a small percentage of their overall cost base. So they don't really notice it, but it's but they have to buy it. So cleaning services, home health care, um, all sorts of contracting services, contracting businesses, um, everything that under the sun that you can think of, somebody has to own it. And as you are talking about, there's so many businesses and baby booners where they've got a great business, they're making a lot of money, their kids are now educated doing something completely different, and there's, you know, who's going to run the business next? Who's going to own the business next? And there's a big, big gap of these businesses uh, all over the country and every type of industry you can imagine. Absolutely. It, it's it's absolutely something we talk about here on the show. Who's going to own your business next is a key yeah. question. And sometimes it might be family, but then mm -hmm. when you really get into it, they might not have the skill set. They might not have the interest themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in your opening remarks, you talked about some other 
some other situations that can be very unfortunate when someone dies, mm -hmm. especially if it's a business partner um, sure. or if it's a married couple and the spouse, the surviving spouse just does not want the business or has really no role in it. Mm -hmm. And that can be very daunting, you know, how, yeah. to, how to take that on. So and, it's good and, to think about it. And it can be very um, value destructive to leave it to that point. Because that's the point where uh, you know the business has to be sold, and every buyer knows that the business has to be sold, and there's clearly something something driving it uh, that is not going to create the best dynamic to sell it with. The right, the best dynamic to sell is sell when you have uh, optionality to, because you may not like the prices or the markets or the buyers that are in that current market, and uh, you can reflect that. And it's pretty easy to see through as a buyer of this is someone that has to sell this business versus no, this is this is a good opportunity that we're trying to get into and have to pay for that. Yeah, thinking back to your elevator company experience, you had two years under your belt to transform the financials and get mm -hmm. operations in in a call it a directionally successful path, you know, versus mm -hmm. where they were previously. Just curious if you would share what what's the ROI as you look at the return on your investment? I'm just curious at a high level. Very high. <laughs> Very high. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the business sell ready and mm -hmm. you brought it to market maybe sooner than you would have thought. But that's given you a really interesting playbook now as you look at businesses. What are some of the key criteria you shared? Of course, recurring revenue and mm -hmm. how the business is kind of this everyday entrepreneur you know, type of company, we need these services. What are some of the other characteristics about the person or the team that's looking to acquire, you know, when you say, yeah, I'm betting on this business, but yeah. you're also betting on the new owner, right? So much. Absolutely. Uh, and especially in the small businesses, uh, there's always a distinction of, is this person selling a business or are they selling a job? Uh, we try not to, I try not to invest in jobs. Uh, it's really hard to sell jobs. Um, but there are some great jobs out there. And in terms of a business, then you're inserting a new person into a business who is generally replacing someone who's been there is either the founder or the son or daughter of the founder or has been there for 50 years uh, and has zero industry experience. So military veterans are always a great group that I like to invest in because they've got leadership experience and they've been through all sorts of things that I can only imagine. And they can be a very steadying leadership presence in these small businesses of like, oh, that person's kind of been through the ringer and there's just a lot of rightful respect conveyed to veterans. Um, engineers are another one. I may be biased because I'm an engineer, but right, the, the data problem solving skill set that comes with engineering is very frequent. And then so much of it is fit and so much of it is random fit. Um, I invested in it, uh, a guy who was buying a food related business uh, his career was completely un, unrelated to food other than he grew up with parents that were franchisor, franchisors or franchisees uh, for a, a fast food chain. He had been around food businesses. I was like, okay. In addition to him being extremely competent and generally you know, well, well qualified and polished, I was like, oh, that's kind of a, he gets it. He gets what his now customers are going through. Um, another business that was dealing with uh, a, a guy who had kids with special needs himself. What an amazing fit um, that, you know, he really, and, that, and, and, and again, that's usually these things don't have to get decided by investors. The owners are the ones who decide because they have to some degree options of who to sell the business to. 
and they're going to pick and usually do pick the person that they see has some unique characteristic that that clicks with them of like oh this person can do it the you know the woman selling the the business with the kids with special needs met this guy's like you're the one who I want to take care of my my children that's how she referred to the kids that her business took took care of um and so you know, the investors get kind of second guess on is this a right fit but frequently you'll find some connection like that in addition to it, you know this person is well put together and put together a good financial model of understanding what's going on. And those things are all very learnable. So it's just, does this person really want this and have they invested the time to understand what's going on? It's the random personality or experience characteristics that fit with the seller that make it a, uh, a best chance at being a surmountable transition. As an acquisition entrepreneur, it's a funnel. Let's say you're going to talk to a hundred sellers you're going to maybe put 10 lois out there mm -hmm. and one will actually transact is that a fair way to look at it or do you think the top of the funnel is even wider much wider how wide i think it it depends on um your strategy for contacting entrepreneur uh, contacting businesses to buy um there's generally a mix of people that are doing cold outreach to i'm going to email blast and call 10,000 businesses in an industry that I like, the hit rates on that are obviously very low, uh, especially with technology today, you can do that very effectively, but business owners are getting bombarded by random people with random emails and among other things. Um, and then there's the you kind of trusted advisor path, you're talking to people like yourself or other intermediaries, bankers, brokers saying, you know, hey, I want to buy it. And that's a much more curated list of businesses because once they're involved with a, an advisor usually a transaction is going to happen and so i very much skew my personal searching towards the advisor path and that's where i see deals getting done uh of the you know 15 or so deals i've done in the past five years a large majority are coming through a banker or a broker or something very similar to that just because those are the deals those are the deals that are happening yeah, what I see sometimes is a seller has been approached. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, this is interesting. Let me go find out more. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, I think there's a reality that that company might not be sell ready. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the really hard thing to, to gauge as a searcher is, you know, somebody responded to my email. Very likely, they just want to know what their business is worth. And so they'll take up a bunch of time talking to you, but you have to filter very quickly. Is this person serious about selling their business? Um, otherwise, you can waste a ton of time having really interesting, pleasant conversations with wonderful business owners who just aren't going to get to the finish line. Right. And so having that advisor involved is the best indicator you can have as a potential buyer that this person is serious about selling their business. The other one is, what is this person going to do after they sell their business? Like, why are they selling? What are they going to do? Is this someone who is 65 and going to go retire in Arizona and play golf because that's where their grandkids are? Or is this someone who is going to spend the rest of their life in their business and doesn't really have a plan because that's another red flag as well, because that that much more likely means that they're just going to hold on um, and don't have something else to go to, i.e. therefore, you know, what are they kind of, why would they give it up?
Yeah, it's so interesting you, you say that. I 100% agree. We see that all the time, you know, as someone who I work with clients on their vision for transition, whether it's the mm -hmm. personal side or the business side. And, and when and I love to say when time is on your side, we have enough, we can create options and we can yeah. figure out some of these planning. But I, the other day I heard from a executive at a privately held company, the owner is 92 and still there. Perfect. The person who had reached out to me is 62 and has been working there for years and years, but there's still no transition. Why is mm -hmm. that? Right? There's many reasons mm -hmm. why I don't ultimately I won't know. Yeah. But but nonetheless, it's not a good situation. And it's very tricky, you know, if owners don't ultimately don't want to leave and people are going to leave one way or another. Like 100% yep. of us are yep. going to leave our business one day. It's just a reality. So are we going to be participative and try to get the value in that? Or are we going to ride it all the way to the end and, you know, drive it into the ground? Yeah. And if you're going to do that, just acknowledge that you're doing that. Right. Like I'm here till it ends for better or for worse. I know what I'm doing so we can plan accordingly. Uh, it might not be optimal, but that's fine. Like you own the business, you get to do whatever you want. Um, but having that plan for whatever it is. And then, you know, also just understanding who do you want to buy the business in terms of those characteristics, because the longer you go, the fewer options you have. Absolutely. So let's call it down to maybe three things. And mm -hmm. you can talk from the aspect of the sell side or the buy side. Mm -hmm. What recommendations do you have for owners or buy side investors? Yeah, um, I think reviewed financials is number one. We already talked about that. It's you have to get your taxes done. Uh, if not, you're never going to sell your business. Uh, so you might as well have the review done then um, because they're your accountants are going through everything. Um, what else did I, was I thinking about, you know, who, who's going to advise you, who will, who will represent you along with who do you want to buy you, right? Do you want your business to stand alone? Do you want your business to be part of a bigger thing? Do you want your employees to still all be there? All of those things are generally within your power to some degree, uh, depending on how much financial value you place on each one of them and what market you're in. Um, and then what else do you want to do to position the business to sell versus what are you going to leave for the buyers to do? And by identifying those things, you can put together a pretty compelling um, kind of pitch as part of selling the business. Here are the things that I did to improve this business or that you know we're growing in these areas. Here are the things that I know we could do. I just haven't done. And so I'm going to hand them off to you, buyer, because you may want to do them. And I think that can be, you know, who knows if the buyer will do them, but if, the, if that's a legit list, that can really help you kind of create some interest for a business that may have uh, fewer options otherwise. If there is another similar business in a geography that would be make sense for the businesses to both be bought together. If there's a new market to enter, if there is a new software system to run the business with that you don't want to mess with, but you know will help things run smoother. Those are all the types of things that most buyers will be interested in as they think about what they're going to pay for your business. And the, the more, obviously the bigger, the better, but the more um, kind of arms reach that are with it, where I guess within reach, the better, because those are things that you can get value from. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love all of that. That's a great summary. I mean, I've even heard of, um, and probably not in this market, but in, in a hot market, uh, financial buyers where um, they'll know that you're underpricing. So 
they'll put together a financial set based on your revenue being 5% higher because you're under market and you can get paid for that. Not, not very rarely. It's best if you implement the price increase, increase first and then say, hey, look what I did. You're, you're going to get all this credit for it. I want the whole, you know, the whole price to be 5% higher or something like that. Those things are very plausible uh, and do happen. So thinking through kind of where there's ability to push your business a little bit, doing some things yourself and then identifying the others can, can create a lot of value very quickly, some, sometimes just from that thought exercise. That, that's great advice. Thank you. So let's share a favorite quote. Do you have one that inspires you? I've got a, a couple, but a, a fun anecdote that I recently came across that is very um, rel related to investing is um, Stanley Druckenmiller was being interviewed years ago. Uh, he got a very compelling pitch from an analyst uh, that was managing some of his money and was convinced that Tesla was a short. And at the very end of the pitch, Stanley Druckenmiller apparently says, you made a very compelling case that Tesla is a short. Have you ever driven the car? And the analyst apparently said no. And Stanley Druckenmiller then proceeded to pull his money. So regardless of what you think about Tesla, uh, whether it's a short or not, I thought that was a very uh, compelling thought that it certainly would have saved me sins of have you driven the car? because there are situations where I wish I had driven the car before making an investment that I could have learned a lot than being in a, in a spreadsheet that I just, just that very much stuck with me. Yeah, that's very much the Warren Buffett philosophy, right? If you can go to the store, buy it, if you like it, yeah. you know, it's a product that you would recommend, then chances <laughs> are others will too. Yeah, and, and then to, in terms of, the, you know, the kind of the people aspects we were talking about, do you want to drive the car? Right. Is that what you want to be doing? Would you rather have a motorcycle? Uh, <laughs> who is going to be driving the car for you? Right. Is that someone, do you trust them or would you not get in the car with them, but you're going to invest in everything? So those, I thought that was a very good metaphor for a lot of things about investing that uh, kind of simplifies the thought process. Yeah. And I'm just so curious, do you meet everybody face to face or only over Zoom or? No, uh, the, the first person that I invested in, the first couple, I had some connection to them. And then quickly it expanded to, you know, connections of connections and connections of connections. And during COVID, obviously didn't meet many people. So I, fortunately, earlier this uh, last, last fall, I guess, I met a bunch of people that I had invested in that I had never met in person before. So it was a lot of fun. Um, so usually I will have, um, I guess almost always, I'll have a, some relatively solid connection to these people through now through my investing network of, oh, this person knows you who I've invested with a number of times, those types of things. Um, but yeah, it's crazy how quickly it is transitioned to a, oh yeah, someone that I know very closely that I'm investing into, someone that I have never met before, never seen face-to-face -face that I'm you know, sending a significant check to. So you're flying over, over the pond going to the UK sometimes too? No, the, the, those guys I've not uh, met not in person. Yet. No, okay. those were all connections of connections. All right, so um, maybe in the future. Well, this show is a global show. We'll have people listening in the US and the UK. So hopefully they'll want to get in touch with you. What's a great way for them to reach out? Sure, my email is ben at heartwoodpoint.com. You can look me up on LinkedIn or my website, heartwoodpoint.com. Um, pretty easy. I'm very accessible. It's just me, so <laughs> no problem. Ben you are a, a world of wisdom, both on the buy side, sell side. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing all your wisdom with us. Well, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate the time being with you. Thank you.
So I just want to thank our listeners. Be sure to like and follow Succession Stories in your favorite podcast player and on YouTube. And to maximize the value of your business and plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Join me next time on Succession Stories for more insights from transition to transaction. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com. Dot com.